200 years before Jesus was born, a Greek mathematician reasoned out the formula for that U-shaped curve that is formed um, by, by the intersection of a, um, of a plane into a cone. His name was Apollonius of Pergamon. Parabola is the word that he gave this thing because it means an exact application. Listen now, he said, and I quote, I call it a parabola because the curve is produced by direct application to a given era, uh, area. A parabola is a Greek word for a, an exact application. By the way, he wrote a series of books about this. He wrote a series of books about cones. He invented the word ellipse. He invented the word parabola and hyperbola. Um, he invented all these terms. By the way, the books became bestsellers, I think, partly because his overseeing headmaster, uh, the guy was a student, Apollonius was, his overseeing headmaster tried to fact check his work. Um, he didn't like this new math, and so he tried to suppress it. And like most suppressed things, that made it a hit. Uh, it turns out his math was actually spot on. It was correct in nearly every instance. But his word choice is what matters for us today. His word choice, parabola, that changed language forever. You see, before Apollonius, uh, works like people uh, by Aesop, works like his, they were called fables. Fables were popular ways of teaching. They were, they were short moral stories based in, in everyday events that contained one main idea. But within a few years after Apollonius proved the parabola, fables were no longer called fables. They became rebranded as parables, parabola. And everybody understood, everyone understood that these kinds of stories offer an exact application. They come from straight lines intersecting reality. For example, Aesop wrote this fable. You probably know this one about the dog and his bone. A dog carrying a bone over a bridge looks down into the water and sees his own reflection. Taking it for another dog carrying a better bone, the, the dog opens his mouth to bark at the other and in doing so, drops its own bone into the river. What is the exact application? What is the point? There's only one big point, parabola. What's the big point of that fable? What is it? Yeah, greed makes you lose things. That's right. My favorite representation of it came in the Middle Ages. This guy, Reverend uh, John Lydgate, he said, uh, he was really a brilliant writer. He said, who all coveteth, oft all loseth. Uh, in his version of the parables. Greed leads to loss. That's an exact application. And that's why these stories became universally known as parables. Now, by the time Jesus was born, the Mediterranean world universally labeled as parables, short moral stories based in everyday events that contain one main idea. How many big ideas? How many main points in a parable? Tell me how many. One, please keep that in mind. It's very important as one launches into Mark chapter 4. Turning your Bible to Mark, second book of your New Testament, chapter 4, and let's read the first paragraph. The first paragraph, verses 1 through 9, Mark chapter 4, uh, starts like this. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee. And a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. 
Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased 30, 60, 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Now, this is the parable of the seed and the soils. Verses 1 through 9 contain Jesus' great parable about a seed and various soils. Jesus taught in many parables. It's telling that Mark selected this one. You probably know this, but the hardest part of writing is editing. Deciding what to, what to cut out, what to leave in. Mark selected this one image to relate. Let's make sure we see the story clearly. Look, look at the, there's a little list of a few little observations in our notes. If, if you're not here, you can go onto the website and you can see the notes there. If you're here, open up your bulletin you got. And I put a little list of observations here. The first thing is to note this story is bound in an inclusio. It's your fancy Latin word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say inclusio. One, two, three, inclusio. Very good. Don't be, don't be dismayed by the Latin term. It's very simple. It just means bookends. That's all it means, a bookend. So, so the very beginning of this story, you have listen. The very end of it, you have listen. Just inside of that, you've got another little, a little bookend marker. You've got consider and hear, which are parallel to each other. And then that contains the parable, which is in the middle. The parable's about a sower. There is, there is a sower. There is seed and by the way, it's very significant this seed has the power to blossom. The story falls apart if the seed couldn't uh, supposedly blossom wherever it is planted. The seed is fine. Um, Jesus details four different soils. We've got the path, we've got the rocky soil, we've got the thorny soil, and then the good. Three enemies of productivity, right? Birds, rocks, thorns. The unproductive soil has three outcomes. It's devoured, it's withered, or it is fruitless. The good soil produces 30, 60, 100. You know, it's often a struggle for college students when I teach uh, parables in a Bible interpretation class. The, the students, they just it, it so much want to take many different levels of meaning out of each one of these, and they want to make an antecedent for every single noun. Is that a good idea? Is that a good idea? Please say no. Please say no. Please say no. There's only how many big ideas in a parable? One. That's why it's called a parable. Parabola. Exact application. You don't play spiritualized games with Aesop, do you? you, you like I, the dog in the story is God, obviously. I mean, look at it. He's, he's, he's looking at his reflection and dog as God spelled backwards. So it's got to be that the dog is God and, and the bone. I mean, okay, stop. Does that make any sense? So stop practicing the same nonsense with Jesus' parables. Look for the big idea. Don't play allegory games. Notice again the inclusio that brackets the telling of the parable. Listen, listen. And the next step in, hear, consider. And that leads to the parable. This listen and hear, these become really important references. You see, Isaiah used those terms a lot, including in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah chapter 6 is the passage that Jesus draws from here. Um, it, in just a minute, in just a minute, we're going to see Jesus quote Isaiah 6 when explaining this parable to the disciples. So, so let's look at what Jesus is referencing. Let's look at what he quotes from and references. He references Isaiah's commissioning as God's prophet. Okay, look up here. Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, that, Isaiah, by the way, in the context is transported to heaven, to the very dimension of God in his throne room. And then I heard, says Isaiah, the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here am I. Send me. And he replied, go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. 
Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of the people dull, deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. And I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Okay. Isaiah responds to God's call, here am I, send me. And the Lord then describes his mission. His mission is, is to spread God's message, experiencing maybe a 10% success rate. Whee! Um, the sarcasm in verse 10 is so vintage of God's Old Testament communication. Look at the sarcasm. He says, Isaiah, you're going to preach, but the overwhelming majority will refuse to really hear unless they actually change and be healed. In, in essence, God says, Isaiah, you're the doctor. Humans are like an older patient that is selectively deaf, right? He, he chooses not to hear what the doctor says he should do about his health. You're the doc, Isaiah. Have fun. It's great to be their physician. So Isaiah says, how long is this going to last? And God replies, this will be the pattern until sometime after Judah is taken away captive. But... God declares, there's a living stump that will remain. It's ready to sprout and be full. And what image does he use to describe that stump? The holy seed. The holy seed. Way back in the beginning, when sin entered into the world through Satan and Adam's sin, God described a Savior. Even in that curse, he described a salvation where the seed of the woman, he called it, would stomp on the head of Satan. That holy seed would, would be the beginning of the end of evil. And that brings us to the big idea of the parable of the soils. Jesus is the holy seed promised in Genesis and in Isaiah. Jesus takes Genesis and Isaiah and he forms a parable to show one major point. He is the holy seed of the woman. He is the one who turns people back to God. That's why he crafts the story with listen, hear, seed. Just as Isaiah was sent by God the Father to take God's words, so Christ followers are sent by God the Son to take God's word. Jesus is God's word. He is the word of God. He is the holy seed that God wants cast out into the world. In fact, Yahweh gives Isaiah a parallel so we understand the relation between God's word and the seed to be sown. Look, Isaiah chapter 55, uh, starting in verse 10. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth, making it germinate and sprout, providing seed to sow and food to eat, so the word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I sent it to do. Apostle Paul picks up on the idea. He, sa he says this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What then is Apollos? Apollos was a famous preacher. What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, and each has the role God has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. The seed and the word are connected in all these passages. People sow, they water. Most reject God's message. But there is always growth that is overseen by God, growth that always accomplishes His purpose. 
The bottom line in all these texts, Jesus is the holy seed who accomplishes God's purpose, bringing fruitfulness from those who receive the word of God. Read it with me. I want to make sure we get the big idea. Here it is. Let's all say it together. Jesus is the holy seed who accomplishes God's purpose, bringing fruitfulness from those who receive the word of God. Now, even though that Isaiah link is blatant in Jesus' parable, people didn't understand, not even the disciples, which, by the way, is exactly what Isaiah predicted, but that's a topic for another time. Um, therefore, Jesus explains the parable. The parable is explained by Jesus. That's the headline, by the way, on the right side of our notes. Jesus explains the parable. Um, skip down, if you would, to verse 33, uh, and let's get Mark's summary statement at the, at the end of this section. Uh, here's the very end of the section. It'll explain the explanation. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these, and they were able to, as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. All right, so you get the idea. That's what Jesus did. Now, go back to where we left off at verse 10. Go to verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. So, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. They may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. Others are like the seed sown on the rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They're short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like the seed sown among the thorns, but these are ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seed sown on the good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Okay. We got the big idea. The only point of the parable, Jesus is the Word of God. He is the holy seed that can bring life. But Jesus very kindly prepares his sowers the same way the Father prepared Isaiah. He takes time to describe how hard this is going to be, how this will play out. Isaiah was ushered into the dimensional presence of heaven and given his commission. He was told to take God's Word. Jesus leaves heaven, enters the dimensional, uh, dimension of the disciples to give them their commission, which is to sow the Word of God. He even calls it a secret of the kingdom. Secret is this word, mysterion, uh, or mysterion, depending on how you pronounce it. Mysterion is not, it, it's not the way we use the term mystery. It's not something hidden that needs to be discovered. The, the, the Greek term mystery means something that's revealed, actually, something you notice. It, it comes from the Greek theater. There would be something that would be on the stage, but it would be very still or very hidden or in the dark, and you wouldn't even notice it was there because of the activity on the stage. And then, at some point, one of the gods would, would highlight this thing and bring it to attention, and suddenly you realize, oh, that's what that was. It was there all along. It was a cute little device used in the Greek stage. He borrows that word to say, here's the revealed secret of God that has been on the stage since Genesis, and it's now highlighted. Sowers get to take God's word. They take Jesus the Savior and they spread it all over. And notice that it goes everywhere. There is no getting around Jesus. Today, um, most of us plant our gardens using small plants. Uh, we use already grown plants. We don't use seeds. E even when seeds are used, 
Like in commercial agriculture, we have these marvelous machines that place every seed very specifically. But for most of human history, that was not the case. Seed was scattered. It was, it was thrown out in a parabolic casting motion. Did you get? Thank you. I, I'm here all week. I, um, the, the, the stuff went everywhere purposefully, right? This, was, this actually was efficient in pre-industrial agriculture because you, you quickly wanted to do your sowing knowing the response you would get from the good soil would, would provide plenty of, of new seed to keep good going. And that brings up a serious point that is connected to the big idea. One cannot escape the necessity of Jesus. You cannot get around him. You can't get away from him. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote about the years he was an atheist saying you have, to be, you have to be so dedicated. You have to be so careful. Jesus is just everywhere. It's everywhere you look. He's the seed. If, if you want health and life, he's it. He's not one particular kind of seed that you can select or, or reject if you want a different kind of seed. No, no. He's it. He is the holy seed. He is to be sown everywhere. There is no getting away from the person of Jesus. Every human must deal with him. Each person is a soil, so to speak, and either has to accept the word of God or reject it. So Jesus describes the process by discussing the various soils. With soil number one, Satan takes away the message. You see that? We have a very real enemy. We don't control him. We don't fully understand him. We know Satan is not omniscient. We know he's not all-powerful. He's created. He's limited. But he is still a serious force that absolutely hates the idea of any person being rescued by trusting Jesus. He does not want any person to receive God's very word. Yes, Satan operates within God's sovereignty. No, we don't understand all the intricacies of that. But we do know this. God wants us to battle in prayer. The Lord desires us to pray for the word to be implanted. And somehow he uses those prayers to make it happen, to block Satan. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 commands this. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of, Lord may spread, the, word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. That is why I pray before I preach. It's why some of you, actually a number of you, pray every Sunday for the, for the news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to bear fruit in every ministry of this church. We fight Satan so that he will be thwarted in trying to steal away the message. And by the way, it's working. Over the past 10 years, did you know this? Over the past 10 years, we have seen people trust in Jesus as Savior every single month at this church, on this campus. In fact, nearly every month over the past 10 years, we have seen each month multiple people become Christians. That's not counting the thousands who study with us outside this area. That isn't counting the missionary work going on elsewhere around the world. Right here on these few acres of good soil, God keeps bringing people to faith in Jesus, planting the holy seed in hearts. All God's people said, amen. amen. Please continue to pray for that. Pray for Satan to be turned away and successful planting to continue. And look out for soil number two. Some begin in joy, but are shallow and dry up in distress. The other day, um, a friend of mine was looking at his phone. We were sitting together, and <clears throat> he said, man, I'm sick of that. And so I turned to look and see what had bothered him. And it was a, it was a 2020 meme. Um, typical, typical joke. 
about these, the horror of the year, the difficult year 2020. Now, when I asked him what bothered him about it, he said, oh, it's not the joke. In fact, he agreed. That's, that's funny. Um, what troubled him was this. He said, I'm troubled by the assumption that, that something, in this case a year, is hopeless. And I thought about what he said, and I realized his point was valid. The, the joke only works because there is an assumption of unconquerable horror associated with 2020. So I did, I did a little thinking on my own after that, and here's what I discovered in Scripture. Proverbs 13.2 clearly speaks to that hopeless, that sick feeling that many of us face during tough times. Proverbs 13.2, hope deferred makes the heart what, everybody? Sick, it makes the heart sick. But that sickness has a scriptural balance. It, it is answered by scriptures like this one, Psalm 39, verse 7. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. If you're waiting for something to change, for some season to pass, for some year to finish, stop. Stop waiting. Our only waiting should be on our Lord. Yes, there are times our hearts get sick. That is part of life here on earth. But that's not the whole story. That, not for the Christian. Not ever. Jesus addresses a shallowness that burns up in the heat of troubled days. Depth comes from accepting the Lord's hope. What am I waiting for? You're my hope. Letting that burrow deep inside. Even non-believers recognize this. Uh, in the midst of that scorching year of 2020, researcher Elizabeth Bernstein, she wrote this. Uh, she is not a Christian. And she said, hope feels increasingly elusive. Seven months into a pandemic, during an emotionally exhausting election cycle as winter bears down, yet hope is the very best reaction to the moment, psychologists say. It's crucial to our physical and mental health. It guards against anxiety and despair, and it protects us from stress. Research shows that people with higher levels of hope have better coping skills, they bounce back from setbacks faster, they're better at problem solving, and have lower levels of burnout. Close quote. Burnout. Where in the world did that term come from? Hmm, they burn up in the heat, just like Jesus said. Then there's soil number three. Some are unfruitful. They're choked by the stuff of earth. Verse 18, go back to verse 18. Others uh, are like seeds sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> wow, deceitfulness of wealth, desire, grasping for other things. We never, we don't do that. We never drop our bone in discontentment while we're reaching for more, right? <clears throat> Kids, your Christmas or birthdays, they never turn into entitlement parties, right? Where you just are really greedy and demanding more. That's just not us. Look at Jesus' comment. Worries of this age. Ion is the word he uses. Ion is a, it's, it's a great Greek term about um, the spirit of an era. The, um, <clears throat> the gestalt, the, the personality of a time, its problems, its, its passions. And the New Testament uses that word Ion repeatedly to show that all times are evil on this broken earth. That is true. God cares about that. So should we. But it shouldn't choke us any more than greed should. Do, do you get choked by the worries of this age? Do you spread vitriol or sarcasm? Uh, do, you do you worry about what other people are doing? 
Do you respond in fear of what happens or what might happen? Most of us do. Most of us get choked by the worries of this age. Rich Mullins nailed the problem in his poem, If I Stand. He said, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. Jesus is the holy seed. He is God's word implanted in lives. He should not be choked out by stuff of earth. His work in our lives should deepen so it doesn't dry up under hardship. And we must pray that Satan is thwarted when he tries to take away the word. And even with those battles, we have this awesome promise. Soil number four. Those who receive Jesus' word are incredibly productive. Verse 20. You who are Christians, you are, you are amazing. God, it is awe-inspiring to see what God does through you people. Through Jesus, you start works that absolutely change lives. By, by God's inspiration, you heal relationships. In God's grace, you, you endure awful persecution and, and, and quite often end up leading your persecutors to faith in Jesus. In every part of every I own, God has used Christians to spread the word. Billions have been spiritually rescued. Civilizations transformed. People freed from slavery. Diseases battled. Wars won against great evils. All because of a way of living and thinking that develops from the living word of God implanted. Amen? Amen. Now, Mark could have stopped there. But, led by God the Spirit, he expands that final point. Here's what he does. He takes, he takes four images that are drawn from, from Jesus' teaching. Mark 4 includes four more parables here. Now, some of these were spoken at other times, it seems very likely, but that's fine. In the, in the way writing was done at that time, you could rearrange stuff to fit your argument. So Mark takes the parables and he edits them and he puts them right here. So the final, here's how I put it in your notes. The final soil image is further illustrated in the paragraphs that follow. First comes the lamp. The lamp. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. He also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed, nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. When we were in Nazareth Village, I was shocked by this. Um, our guide took a first century oil lamp and uh, poured some oil in it and, and put a wick in and he lit it and he set it on the ground in the little house. I, I snapped a shot. It, it just gave very little light, very little. Um, the, actually, this photo looks like there's more because as I was taking the picture, somebody opened the door behind me. Um, very little light. But then he took that and he put it up on the sconce in the wall, what, what, we, what they called a lampstand, we would call a sconce. And it was amazing. When that little, that little oil lamp, when it was put up on the sconce in the wall, suddenly the room was, was really bright, even with the door closed. I was able to read my Bible right there with no problem. With that in mind, look at what Jesus is saying. You, you good soil followers of Jesus, you are meant to bear fruit. You illuminate. God uses you to bring things to light for others through the brightness of good deeds done in Jesus' name. Nothing should remain hard to see around you. The, those who take Jesus' words shine. And they begin an eternal illumination that will only grow and grow and grow until Jesus returns and no darkness remains. So... What keeps us from shining? Are you, um, <clears throat> are you hiding your Jesus light under the basket of partisan politics? A lot of people do. I know people, a number of people on both the left and the right, who think, and they really think they are shining the light of truth in Jesus' name. And yet, and it's between them and the Lord, it seems 
that they're merely hiding Jesus under their party affiliation. Maybe you hide Jesus' truth under the bed of your fears. I, I understand the fear. It is, it is chilling that you live in an era when schools and companies and governments openly discriminate against Christians. Doxing is real. It is an ugly tool. There is nothing wrong with a healthy fear of cancel culture tactics. But ask yourself, does that make me go dark? Does the fear of all that cause me to stop sharing Jesus? Please listen carefully. Be who you are. Be who you are out loud, visibly, winsomely. If you try to hide, your light just becomes darkness and it will never keep the evil away. Instead of hiding Jesus in your, in your life, be genuine. Be unforced in your light. What is the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is you get persecuted, you lose work, you have tough things happen to your family, and you gain eternal rewards in heaven forever. That's a good trade. The second worst thing that can happen is they kill you. Where do you go, believer in Jesus? Not a bad deal, right? This is not bad. Those who take Jesus' word shine, and they begin an illumination that will only grow forever until Jesus returns and no darkness remains. All God's people said? Second, Jesus uses, and Mark relates, the picture of a measuring basket. Verse 24, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. When I was a kid, I really enjoyed riding my bicycle. I think eight was the age when I was allowed to just go on my own and ride through our little town. And I particularly enjoyed, when I had money, going to Clark's Bakery. Uh, it, there, that is what heaven smells like, is Clark's Bakery. Um, <laughs> And even when I didn't have money, I would go around the corner from Clark's Bakery to the post office. Uh, the postmaster there, she was very nice. And when she had time, she would talk to me about stamps. She and I both collected stamps. And, uh, and then always my favorite place I would hit was across the street from the post office was our feed store. And there were always in the afternoon, there were always a bunch of old farmers there. Always a bunch of old farmers. They, um, they had old empty uh, bushels they would turn over and they played checkers on those. And they talked about baseball and football and complained. They always complained about the weather. It didn't matter what the weather was. They complained about it. And, um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from those guys. We weren't a farming family, but I listened to those old guys and I learned some things. And one of the things I observed has a direct bearing on Jesus' point here. There's a certain etiquette, or at least there used to be, a certain etiquette when you were buying seed out of the big barrels. There were certain big barrels of common seed. Uh, for us, it was, it was a certain form of wheat, uh, a winter wheat, and, and there were big barrels of it, and, and there was an etiquette. And what you did was you walked up with your bucket. Uh, usually it was given by Purina to you. And, uh, and you had your bucket, and the clerk would come along, and he would put, he would put the kernels in your bucket. Now, when he, when he filled it up, there's, there's always some airspace between the, the kernels, the grain. And so it was totally kosher to, to shake the bucket a little bit and let it settle. And then if it settled down, he would, he would give you more. He had much more was given. He, was, he would top it off. But, and I only saw this a couple of times, it was considered absolutely inappropriate to shake your bucket and to press down and push down and make sure you got more room. When you did that, you were seen as a judgmental, graceless jerk, and the farmers used much harsher language than that. 
A customer like that, here's what that customer was doing, unfairly usually, was silently accusing the vendor of fraud. You don't really give good things. You're not really giving enough. You don't measure to me well. I'm going to show you measure. That's the idea. Here's the result. When that demanding judgmental farmer got hit by the inevitable hailstorm or tornado, he would need more seed, right? Because if you don't know, kids, when, when, you're, when you get decimated by a hailstorm, it's usually still early enough in the year you could get another crop, so you hurry and want to go get something in. But because you haven't harvested anything, you don't have any money. So when that guy goes back with his bucket to the seed store and he wants more seed, what do you think he's going to get? He's going to get the same measure that he gave, gracelessness. He's going to receive nothing because he gave nothing. Jesus says, now look what he says, pay attention to what you hear. You don't need to listen to rumors about the productivity of your brethren, about the goodness of the, of the vendor. When you are judgmental toward other people who are serving Jesus, toward Jesus himself, your own measure is going to be used against you. Thus, as we say in the notes, be wary of inspecting others. The big idea of the parable is what? Jesus is what? He is the holy seed, right? It's all about him. You cannot get around him. We are to sow his word, concentrating on our own service, not judging others. Look, look, at, the, look at the verbiage. This is so cool. Look up here. Pay attention is a form of blepo. Now, blepo is a word for peering carefully at something. But get this. Jesus uses blepo of negative situations. He only uses it of negative situations where, where a person is peering at other people judgmentally, right? For example, Jesus later makes this statement, Luke chapter 6. Why do you look, blepo, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice, and he uses a different verb, the beam of wood in your own eye? The point in Mark is that when Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear, he's describing the need to look at self perceptively. Look at yourself instead of other people. Root out that judgmentalism that will come back on your own head. Yes, yes, we're to look at our brethren. We're to love our brothers and sisters and sharpen them. Yes, we do call out sin with compassion, but we do so without judgment, without blepo. When I sneer, when I am graceless toward others, that measure is going to come back around to me. We are to be personally productive with what Jesus gives, not waste our time measuring others. There's a third image, just to make certain we understand the growing seed. Go to verse 26. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. <clears throat> a man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps, rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Here's another reason to be humble uh, about the people around you. You're not making all this great stuff happen. It's not all up to you. Your productivity, and this is true in every area of life, your productivity depends on forces you cannot control or understand. Just as a farmer cannot control everything, not even in our industrial agriculture, so you and I cannot control spiritual outcomes. Just stay faithful and do our job. Our job is to spread the truth about Jesus. The responses are in God's hands. This, this is the evil that is lurking behind the typical statement. The typical statement which is often very well-intentioned, I want to change the world, right? Now, that, that can be a noble sentiment, but there, there is real danger in that statement. 
Do you see what the danger is? The danger is you and I cannot change the world. God alone changes the world. In fact, our desire to change the world usually has more to do with our wish to be in control than with any real altruism, right? Our work is to believe his words and do our role, leaving the results in his hands. Here's, here's the attitude that actually changes the world. The attitude that brings positive change is trusting God and doing our part. Finally, to root this idea of Christian productivity, what later historians would call the Protestant work ethic, uh, to root this deep in our hearts, Mark records Jesus giving one more parable, the mustard seed. Go to verse 30, the mustard seed. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or, or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. Remember, remember, Mark selected and grouped these stories for a reason. The main idea of chapter 4 is Jesus is God's word. He is the holy seed that can change everything. And when he is received, there is awesome productivity. Even, even the idea of kingdom speaks to this. The, the very use of the word is really important. Um, in earlier eras of human history, it was very common to speak of a kingdom being wherever the monarch happened to be. So, for example, Shakespeare could, could write, Enter Norway in Hamlet Act 3. And everybody knew, everybody knew that meant that at that point, when he writes that, that the king of Norway steps out on the stage, right? It doesn't mean the entire Norwegian landmass drops on the Globe Theater, right? That's not what he meant. The kingdom is where the king is. The kingdom is where the king is, and God's kingdom is amazing. Because it's where the king is, it's unbelievably productive. It starts incredibly small. Je Jesus came as a Jew, to a tiny, maligned people group, but his work extends through time and space to cover all humanity. Jesus' church began as a small bunch of people who were fearing for their lives in an upper room, but it has morphed and scaled into expressions of magnitude that defy imagination. Now, the world doesn't always see that as positive. You understand that, don't you? They often think that the amazing spread of God's kingdom is, is like kudzu. Uh, if you don't know how kudzu spreads, just visit the American Old South and you'll see it's, it's horrifying. But Jesus shows that this, this amazing spread is a positive thing. You see, birds nesting in a massive tree, that's a regular motif in Hebrew prophecy. Uh, it always indicates a great king who blesses all people and all those who take refuge in his protection. For example, back in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a great tree. Look, the tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. The leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches. See the same phraseology there? And all flesh was fed from it. Jesus uses that prophetic image as a call to bear fruit, to be productive by sowing the king's words, to see God's amazing kingdom grow great because he is here. Therefore, in a nutshell, what do we do? We share Jesus. We share the holy seed. And as we do so, we remember these four application stories in Mark. Don't hide. Shine. Cut out the fruit inspection. Look to yourself and not the log in somebody else's eye. Quit trying to work out all the ends. Just be fruitful and quit trying to be in charge. 
and do all this with confidence in Jesus' amazing kingdom reach. Amen? Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we will be faithful, that we will, uh, that we will shine, that we will live out loud, that we will remember that as we leave here, we are, we are given the most precious resource. We are given the, the word of God, Jesus, the holy seed, and we are to share you, sow you. And by the way, I pray for anyone studying with me who has never believed in Jesus as Savior. I pray you, you implant the word in them right now. That you prepare them as good soil. For their sake and for the sake of all those that, that you will use them to bless. Friend, if you have never believed on Jesus, listen. J Jesus is exactly who all these intricate prophecies we looked at today, he is exactly who they claimed that he is. He is the very God, very human who came to earth. He died like a seed in the earth. He was buried and he rose from the dead to pay for your sin and to let you follow him in everlasting life if you will trust him. As we saw earlier in Mark, and you can read it on your own, you, you believe on the Lord Jesus and you're saved. If you've never done so, do it right now. Believe in Jesus. Re receive the word of God. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior and you are elsewhere, not in this room, please just Share that with the host. Uh, you can do so privately or publicly. Either is great. We would love to rejoice with you. If you're in the room here, everybody's still praying. Would you raise your hand, please, and just look up at me so I can rejoice with you. If you trusted Jesus, amen. Good for you. Praise God. Lord, I pray for all of us here as believers in Jesus that the word will dwell richly in us. In Jesus' name, amen.